We'd like to thank our sponsors, the Hydration Foundation, a nonprofit organization focused on better hydration for people, plants, animals, and soil. As the leading authority on hydration, the Hydration Foundation is dedicated to solving our health on this planet through creating better systems and conversations when it comes to water and how it moves through our bodies, irrigation, and food systems. You can learn more about the Hydration Foundation by navigating to www.hydrationfoundation.org. You can donate to Hydration Foundation's program to restore soil through water. With $33, we can rehydrate and decontaminate one acre of farmland with a better way for irrigation. Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening. Today's episode is about the cosmos and investigating our place in the universe. On today's episode, we'll be featuring our guest, Neil deGrasse Tyson, an astrophysicist and author of more than a dozen books, one of which you may recognize, Astrophysics in a Hurry. He is the host of Star Talk, Podcasts, and Cosmos, televised by Fox and National Geographic. He's also received 21 honorary doctorates, as well as NASA's Distinguished Public Service Medal. I'm so excited to welcome Neil to the show. Welcome, Neil. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm always happy to bring some universe down to earth for whoever will listen. <laughs> This is great. Yeah. And we have, um, you know, a mainstream audience that I think might be beginners all the way to intermediates in this space. So I just want to kick it off with what is our place in the universe? I mean, are we truly alone? Yeah. So those are two really different questions, unless you define what your place is based on the existence of others, which I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> uh, our place in the universe, I think is uh, let's start out by our location, right? Of course, we are on Earth. It was a little bit devastating to people's ego when we learned that Earth is not alone of its kind, even in our own star system. Um, there are other planets, right? So the fact that we're on a planet itself was not special. But then we had this beautiful, warm orb in the sky called the sun, and that clearly looks different from the stars, and that's why they have two different words. The sun is the sun and the stars are the stars. We would then learn that the sun is just another star. It just happens to be really close. And so now we have the sun and the planets. And of course, we have comets and moons and this sort of thing. Well, where is the sun? For the long while, we, we believed based on some scant evidence, but also our ego helps this belief that the sun is in the center of all the stars in the night sky. That wasn't the case either. <laughs> it just gets it gets it gets worse all the way down, right? So no, so Earth isn't special. The Sun isn't special. Our location isn't special. There are three, four hundred billion other stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Then nineteen twenty nine, uh, Edwin Hubble, the man after whom the telescope was named, discovers that. Oh, excuse me. In 1926, Edwin Hubble discovers that our galaxy is not even alone in the universe. There's countless other galaxies. This great organization of 
of stars, which are akin to cities, really, right? Uh, most, you know, many people live huddled together in cities and others scattered in the countryside, but the, the cities are sort of where all the action is. So, so our galaxy was not even unique. And then a few years later, the 1929 date, he would discover that the universe is expanding. It kind of looks like we're in the center of that, and our ego helped that along for a while until we realized, no, we're not. So we have a sense of where we are in the universe, but that doesn't come along with meaning, I don't think. Often when people want to know their place, they want to know how they should feel about it, how they should reflect upon it. Yeah. And so the most profound information I can share with you that I even know of, it's this, I think this the tops my list, comes to us from research in astrophysics in a research paper published in 1957. So we're going back a ways, nearly 70 years. Um, you, by the way, you probably haven't heard of this research paper because it was four people and they, they, didn't, and they didn't say Eureka overnight burning in midnight oil. It took a decade, right? So those kind of stories don't make it into the movies. All right. Um, but anyway, in my field, we all know who these are and what this paper is. It's the first to show that the ingredients that comprise life, you, your body, my body, all life on Earth, are traceable to stars that manufactured the carbon and the oxygen and the nitrogen, manufactured them and then scattered them into the galaxy to enabled subsequent star systems to birth planets and on those planets birth life because life has these ingredients. So when you look up at the night sky, you are not simply separate from those stars. You're not distinct from the universe, even if you, even if you want to think so. In fact, not only are we in the universe, but the universe is in us. And we have this, we have this urge to think that being special means you're different from everybody else. But instead, I think being special means you are the same as everything else. I mean, think about it. If, if you know you have stardust within you, that makes you akin to the universe. And that makes me feel large when I look up at night rather than small. So... This is some of the, the, the infusions of what it is to know who we are and what our place is in the universe. Wow. And can we talk a little bit more about the planets? Like, How are the planets classified today, right? Some of them are made up of different uh, matter than others. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to dwell on a classification scheme. Let's not distract ourselves with that. It's a perfectly legitimate question. And lesson plans and textbooks like to do that because you can test it with multiple choice questions. You know, <laughs> it lends itself to that, but it doesn't lend itself to deep understanding. So rather than think of classifications, let's think of uh, properties. Okay? okay. So there are planets that are, have gaseous atmospheres, earth among them. So is uh, uh, Mars and, and Venus. And some planets have so much atmosphere that they're mostly atmosphere. And then you get Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune. Then there's some moons that have atmospheres. That's kind of cool. We know that our moon doesn't, famously doesn't, but some other moons do. There's a moon of Saturn, uh, has an atmosphere, Titan, 
one of the largest moons in the solar system. So that's kind of interesting. So some places have air, all right? Different compositions, but let's just call it air. Then some other classes of objects are just kind of icy, all right? Comets are top of that list. Uh, oh, by the way, Pluto is icy, okay? Sorry about that. That's just deal with it. Okay. <laughs> Get over it. Uh, Pluto, more than half of its volume is ice. Wow. And if Pluto ventured close to earth, excuse me, if, if Pluto ventured close to the sun, heat from the sun would evaporate that ice and Pluto would grow a tail. That Now that's no kind of behavior for a planet, right? So Pluto got into trouble, not trouble, Pluto got what was coming to it, I should say, because it had masqueraded as a planet in our catalogs for so long. And then you realize, no, it, it has its properties are just completely different and more akin to other objects for which we have other names. And so, uh, so, so, so anyway, so, so if you add it all up, there's some fascinating things going on in the solar system. And it's this entire branches of my field of people just thinking about these problems and challenges. And you know who else you need? You need the geologists in, in the room. Because, of course, geo, you know, is the Greek prefix means earth. Um, and geometry literally means earth measurement. All right. That's to show you how people were thinking about it back then. But so geo means earth. And we don't have a word for Marsology, right? It's still geology on Mars. But nonetheless, um, geologists have a field day thinking about these rocky planets and rocky moons and so it's quite the multidisciplinary backyard that we have. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So fascinating. And uh, Neil, you talked earlier about how everything is expanding in the universe. And so what does that mean for our existence on Earth? And is everything kind of expanding at the same rate? Uh, like, so for example, you mentioned that if Jupiter um, got close to the sun, that it would uh, change the atmosphere or, or melt all the, the ice. Oh, if Pluto got too close. Yeah. Oh, Pluto, Pluto, sorry, not Pluto. Pluto. Yeah. Pluto. Yeah. And so what is, you know, what does that mean for us if everything is expanding? Yeah, it, it doesn't mean anything for us. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I know you want to say something deep. Uh, I think I, I tweeted once. I, I think I tweeted this. It was, um, no, I, I, yeah, yeah. What I tweeted was, you can't blame the umpire's enlarged strike zone on the expanding universe. Can't blame that's a baseball. <laughs> I think we were in the middle of the World Series or something, and I said that. Um, but, a, but a more sort of less specific uh, a bit of humor related to that would be um, if the universe is expanding, how come I'm still stuck in traffic? <laughs> so when will I get some of that benefit, right, from the expanding universe? Um, so it's expanding on its largest scales, and that expansion, um, the, the forces that that gird the life that we lead. These are the forces that hold your molecules together, the forces that keep you attached to Earth. Those forces locally are far in excess of what's going on in the expanding universe. So the expanding universe does not manifest in our lives. You have to look across large scales in the universe and then you see it. And this is what Hubble first measured in 1929. So galaxies are hurtling away from each other and one another. Mm, wow. Neil, what's uh, the latest discovery when it comes to our planetary existence in this galaxy, like new planets that have been uh, discovered? And maybe this is the most surprising thing that you've learned in the last year or so when it comes to the galaxy. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. 
I mean, it's a, it's a highly active field. And often what's more exciting than some discovery is the potential for more discoveries given some piece of equipment that just was designed, invented, built, applied. So, for example, I was quite enchanted by the fact that just in recent months, three countries sent probes to Mars. Uh, China, uh, the United Arab Emirates, the first for Arab states, and the United States. All three had probes launched around the same time, understandably because the orientation of Earth and Mars in our orbits around the sun are only favorable for this sort of transfer uh, every two and a half years or so. So generally everyone sort of loads up for the for the um, for that trip and everyone leaves together basically everyone left within a month of each other so that's kind of fun and all these what the rovers and orbiters and and we the american one even has a helicopter now that's badass you know you can you you say all right this rover thing i'm i'm this so it's so 1990s let's put in a helicopter so there's a helicopter which is more an engineering test than anything else it has more engineering principles to be tested about it than scientific experiments to pave the way for future missions to Mars where it become might become routine to have a copter. But it had to be specially designed because the atmosphere of Mars is so thin that the the speed of the rotors and how big the rotors are have to compensate for that so that it gets the lift that it needs. But what's good about it is, you know, the, the rover is not going to climb up a steep hill and down into from the lip of a crater. Whereas a, a helicopter, you can just lift it up. It's like a drone, right? You can control it the way you control drones. You lift it up and then it drops down in and you can go almost anywhere with it. So so these, so when you ask what discovery have, do I, have I embraced, I can tell you that, but I'm even more excited about these new frontiers that are opening up because of our engineering ingenuity. Wow. Um, I had no idea that those three countries went, um, and the United Arab Emirates, that's, uh, quite incredible. Yeah. All in. Yeah. And wow. they, they, they're on their 50th anniversary, I think, or it's a, a decadal anniversary. I forgot which one 50 or 60. And so they wanted the, and they're all, they're also having an expo of this in the spirit that remember like, uh, you know, the world used to do this every five, 10 years. You know, there's the World's Fair in New York and the mm -hmm. Paris Expo. You go back to when was that, 18, whatever. These are places where countries would come and show their fanciest, most interesting engineering marvels, right? So, and that's kind of uh, a lost art in, in recent decades, but they're trying to resurrect that. So, um, so there's even an expo and you look at the architectural drawings of it, it looks like the future that never came, <laughs> right? I mean, well, you go back to in the 1950s and 60s and think about Tomorrowland and everything was about the future. No one thinks that way anymore. But when we did, that's when the TV show The Jetsons was made, right? right? And in that era. <laughs> and so everybody's, of course, in flying cars and motorized walkways and monorails and 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 all the like. That that expo as designed looks just like that. I just want to, so somebody in the world is thinking about the future, even if we're not. <laughs> wow. 
Neil, so this question comes up a lot. And so it might be maybe a little bit uh, too basic for you, but I actually just think it's important to talk about some of the building blocks of uh, astrophysics and physics. And so I'm wondering if we can just quickly define some, like a few terms that everyone should know, um, you know, at the very basic level. Uh, you mean like what is astrophysics to begin with? <laughs> well, more like like what is a proton, at atom, neutron? Oh, like, oh, yeah. oh, I got you. Okay, so you yeah. want you want like you want um, the universe one hundred and one. That's what you want, you know? Yeah, I think it would, it would be helpful for folks because I think you know. So I think people in your circle are very much attuned to a lot of these terms, um, but I think a lot there's so many people in the world right now who just haven't had any exposure to be even basic physics. So I okay, think, that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. Mm -hmm. And I, I think my terms up till now have been pretty straight. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but because I think about that often. But if you want to, you want to, you want to dive in like with two feet. Okay, uh, head first. <laughs> you want to go with two feet first or head first? How do how do you want to go? Um, right. So let, let me back up for a minute. All right, think about our senses, our five traditional senses, right? So sight, hearing, taste, touch. I left one out, but um, smell. Uh, smell. Smell. Thank you. So so these are our five senses, and this is the traditional senses, and this is the entirety of our access to our world around us. There was no reason before science was invented, there was no real reason to think or believe that things could be going on that were not available to your senses. Why would you think that? If, I, if I'm sight, you knew some people were blind and some people had better eyesight than others, but if you had good eyesight, you saw everything. How could there be something in this world that your senses could not touch or mm -hmm. see or, or or figure out, All right? If there was a smell, of course, you smelled it. And if you didn't smell it, it meant there was no smell. Now, we knew dogs had a more sensitive smell than others, but we didn't think they were smelling things you couldn't if you brought it close enough to your nose, right? So, so we're thinking that our senses are just the bee's knees here, all right? And then... What happens? Oh, uh, by the way, if that's what you think, and then uh, a plague comes, and you have no idea what's causing the plague, then you have to resort to sort of spiritual causes, uh, magical causes. So, you know, 14th century Europe that lost tens of millions of people to the, I guess that was the Black Plague, they what's the reason for it? Is it because there's a microscopic thing you can't see that's influencing you? No, that's not even a thought. It's because God brought it down upon you because you sinned. There were all kinds of explanations offered. All right. And there were some sectors that had better hygiene than others. There's like a Muslim sector in Muslim traditions. There's a lot of cleansing that goes on of feet and hands. And so they get the plague a little less often than others. Oh, it's because they're not Christian, right? And so, so, so the 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 sheer, but um, uh, you just look at what we are prone to think about the causes and effects of things when we didn't have science as a tool. It was it, there is no time in the past where I'm going to say, "Oh, gee, I long for these olden days." No, I don't. No one does. <laughs> really, think it through. Okay, <laughs> think that one through, please. Okay especially if you're black and especially if you're female, this world was not conceived for 
either of us, okay? So um, there's no time better than the present, and let's hope the future keeps going in whatever direction it's going relative to back then. All right. Oh, there's another one, okay? You know that <laughs> that uh, the plague, as, as many understand it, was carried by fleas on the backs of mice and rats, okay? And so, so if you're a woman living alone with a cat, you don't have mice and rats because the cat eats them. Okay, here's everyone dying of the plague except for you. All right, you're a female and you have a cat and it's the 14th century. (laughs) (laughs) And you're not getting sick and everybody else is. You caused it and you're a witch. All right, mm. just, just, uh, you get me angry just thinking about all of this. Anyhow, what, what was I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> A building blocks of, uh, of physics. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So around 1600, there was a remarkable pair of inventions that happened within 10 years of each other. Uh, it was the discovery of the microscope and the telescope, the invention of the microscope and the telescope. And each of those enabled our visual senses to take in aspects of the world that were not directly available to us. So Lee Wenhoek, a Dutch uh, physicist, op, uh, optician, optic, uh, op, what do they call him? Uh, he was an expert in optics. Uh, he developed a new kind of compound microscope and he had the Wherewithal, he didn't say, well, let me just look at my hangnail, uh, magnify a hundred <laughs> times. He could have, and that's interesting, but that's just a hangnail you're seeing up close. He took a drop of pond water and put it under his microscope and then obs- to even think to do that, right? What? It's just water and it's transparent. Why would you think anything is there? But he just wondered. So he takes it, puts it under his microscope, and there was a whole universe of creatures you know, one-celled organisms doing the backstroke. And he wrote about this and sent it to his colleagues at the Royal Society of London. And they wrote back and said, "Um, stop drinking gin before you look through your new device. (laughs) Would you, would you? (laughs) It was, it was a funny response because why would you, why would anyone believe? Plus he called them little animals, animacules. It was one of the cutest <laughs> words ever invented, animacules. And why would you believe this? All right. But of course, since we're scientists, um, you don't take his word for it. So what they did was they sent people up to his lab to affirm what he saw, because maybe he was imagining it. And that's part of the scientific method. Always get a second, third, fourth view, uh, measurement of a claim, especially if the claim is extraordinary. And sure enough, there's an entire microscopic universe that exists, coexists with us in this world. And with the telescope, we learn, no, Earth is not alone as a planet. There, uh, We orbit the sun like all the other things that we call planets. And the sun is not even unusual. A hundred billions of billions of those, right? So as we said, the universe comes to us from the telescope. The larger universe, the smaller universe, comes to us through the microscope. Now, to get directly to your question, what we found was that in order to understand what's going on on the small scales and what's going on on the large scales, we not only had to collect the data, 
with these instruments, it turns out they're responding in ways and according to forces that don't manifest in our lives. Hmm. And thus was the birth of physics as we have now come to think of it with forces and, 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 and these animacules are made of molecules and molecules are made of atoms and atoms are made of particles. And you find this out because you, you make an even better microscope and they're called particle accelerators. You're probing the atom. All right. And we have even better telescopes. We're probing the beginning of the universe. So something I tweeted recently, which I'd happy to reiterate here and now, is that the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you mm. because it is not unfolding according to the way nature has revealed itself to your five senses. Wow. And so the triumphs of science are to create this coherent picture and understanding of how it's all put together and how it all works and why it all works. And that's why it's a bit frustrating when you, you put in all this effort and then you have people who think science is just some other subject that they could take or leave or ignore. And if it doesn't fulfill their desires, they'll just, cause they don't they don't agree with it, that they can just discount it. You don't have that option. Right. The science is true whether or not you believe in it. <laughs> and what I mean by true is if you experimentally show something is going on and that's verified and the, new, the usual checks and balances and that emerges on the other side of that skepticism as in a phenomenon that's still there, you've got a new understanding of the universe to deal with. And if it upsets how you think the universe should be, that really doesn't matter. You know, you, if you if you gain weight next week, you can't complain and want to repeal the law of gravity. <laughs> stuck with those three extra pounds. Deal with it. So, I, to, if I can impress upon your 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 fan base, and your listeners, that um, science advances when we find ways to replace our senses, because our senses are not only inadequate, they are misleading to our own understanding of things. Yeah. Look at these books you can buy that have, um, what do you call these things where the, is it in the page or out of the page? Um, optical illusions. Uh, look at an optic, simple optical illusion book. You love them when you're kids, right? And there's simple line drawings mm. of things. Yeah. And your brain, is it in the page? Is it out of the page? Is it facing left? I, I don't know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and these are simple drawings. And now we want to try to bring these same senses and understand the universe in an objective way. That's hard, if not impossible, without the methods and tools of science. And I'm a scientist to participate in that adventure. Mm, I love that. And Neil, yeah, I'm, I think uh, science has had such an interesting, <laughs> uh, people have had very different points of view on, on the world of science um, the last, especially the last year. I heard this really great uh, phrase. I can't remember who said it now. It was actually another podcast host. He said, facts are not feelings. And I think I kind of added to that and I said, feelings aren't facts. And I think both are true, right? There's just this paradox of, you know, we feel before we think uh, as humans. So I think people 
sometimes uh, divorce the entire field of science um, when it comes to you know, over-indexing on their feelings. Yeah, because your feelings are very real to you. I mean, in all fairness to those who feel that way, feel that their feelings are important, um, the feelings, there's nothing more real to you than how you feel about something. And uh, by the way, that manifests in, in people's enthusiasm for a religion that they might hold or, or some other sort of belief system. Um, you know, you, if, if you're a Christian, you feel deeply that Jesus is your savior and that God is watching over you. And so uh, in the United States, this, these feelings are protected, right? Unless you having that feeling subtracts from the rights of others. So, so, uh, I'm not here to take away people's feelings, but what I do want to impress upon you is that if you want to ask, if, if you have the power to enact legislation or write laws, those laws should be based on something that's objectively true and that does not pivot on your feelings. Because in a pluralistic country, your feelings are different from someone else's feelings. And in order to have a country under the one roof, whatever is controlling everything legally should be based on things that are not pivoting on any one person's feelings. And that's, that's an important dimension of this. Now, right. of course, the courts are susceptible to feelings, right? That's the whole point of the, you know, at least on TV, the lawyers have their <laughs> final say and they you know, try to convince the jury. And if law was really only about facts, you wouldn't need a jury. You would just have some people who are good at evaluating facts, right? And so a very the very system of our jury, though they don't really admit it, to themselves or to anyone else, has folded in the fact that people have feelings in whether someone gets convicted or not. Right. Wow. Yeah. I want to, we can just go down that <laughs> rabbit hole. I have a lot of questions there. Um, but I wanted to quickly ask you about uh, the stars and how human beings are made up of the stars. And I, I also have a personal uh, desire to know this because I don't know if, if I told you this earlier, but I, I actually wrote a short film called A Star in the Desert. And unbeknownst to me, uh, I had actually made this kind of illusion that um, this, this child uh, gets kind of um, pushed back into the universe as stardust, essentially. And so... I didn't even know at the time that humans were, were made up of the stars, but I'm, I'm super fascinated by this comment. I've heard it from a lot of folks and I was wondering if you could just uh, talk to us about what that means. So clearly you felt it. <laughs> you <had a> feeling. <laughs> Primordial intelligence. <laughs> there you go. Okay. So uh, all evidence tells us that the universe began around 14 billion years ago, the universe, by the way, our solar system is much younger than that, beginning only about 5 billion years ago. So the universe is nearly three times as old as the solar system. So if you go back to those earliest moments, all evidence shows that we began with the elements, hydrogen, mostly hydrogen and helium. And hydrogen is the simplest element. It has only one proton in its nucleus. And if you remember the periodic table of elements that sat in the front of your chemistry class, um, that table is a, te they might not have told it to you this way, but what it is, is a sequence 
of it's a sequence of how many protons are in the element's nucleus. So hydrogen has one proton, helium has two protons, lithium has three protons, beryllium has four. So you just, and it goes all around it. And every element increments by one proton. And that's what distinguishes the fundamental identity of one element versus another, just whether you add a proton or take one away. Well, if the whole universe began as hydrogen, Primarily 99 out of 10 atoms in the universe are were hydrogen. And we have oxygen in us and carbon. If you remember from science fiction, we were thought of as carbon-based life. That's legitimate. Where did the carbon come from? Stars, under the action of heat and pressure in their cores, cram hydrogen atoms together, fuses them under these high temperatures to make heavier elements. And that entire process is called thermoheat, nuclear, because it's the nucleus, fusion, bringing together, thermonuclear fusion. So that goes on every day, every second, every moment inside of all stars, thermonuclear fusion. And not all stars get to make a whole lot of elements. Some only make a few, but the massive ones with the high temperatures and the high pressures, those make significant progress through the periodic table of elements. And if wherever they land there, it, it won't be of use to us unless those elements can come outside of the star. Turns out those are the same stars that explode. Wow. And they scatter their enrichment across the galaxy. And it contaminates or enriches other gas clouds out of which the next generation of star systems are formed. We are such a star system, having benefited from exploding stars billions of years ago. And so you have every right to speak poetically and literally that we are stardust. Wow. That's incredible. Now, I don't know how, what it, I wouldn't know what it would be like to be reconstituted back as stardust. I'm not in a hurry to have that happen to me. I don't know, whatever happened in your story was a pain. Uh, yeah. You know, it was uh, from the perspective of a child in a war zone. Um, oh yeah. yes. Anything. And, yeah. That yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to send it to you actually. <laughs> See if I'd written that story, cause I don't, I don't really have interest in becoming stardust again in that <laughs> one. I, I would want to be abducted by aliens. <laughs> It aliens save me from the war zone. <laughs> Maybe that's the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, in the song, uh, I don't know how old you are, but uh, there's a song, from, I guess it was from the 1970s, by the the band Styx, which was kind of a, a rock group of the day. And they have a song called Come Sail With Me. It's a beautiful song uh, with, with the sailing metaphor as there's a frontier and you don't know where it's going to land, but we're together. And, you know, it's got all the right sort of it pushes the right buttons of your sense of adventure and and um, and being on a quest and in the end it talks about uh meeting angels who invited them up from the ship once they're far away from land but then <laughs> then there's a disclaimer and it says no i thought this is in the script it says in the lyrics it says i thought that they were angels but to my surprise they it was a starship <laughs> and taking me to the skies and so basically that's an alien abduction in that song 
that you don't know about until the last line. <laughs> wow. I'll have to check that out. Come sail yeah, with check me. Check it out. Come okay. sail with me. <laughs> oh, so cool. Neil, what has been your approach to the scientific method evolving? I mean, what is your kind of approach in general to science evolving? And uh, how do you, what sort of the, the things that we need to know um, as it relates to that? Yeah, let me invert the question. Okay. No, it's a perfectly legitimate question, but let me just invert it. Okay. Because I think you'll you'll appreciate what I do with it. Okay. So instead of asking, what do I do with the scientific, uh, as a scientist, when I do science, how does the scientific method manifest? Let me invert that and say, because I'm a scientist and I have training in the scientific method, how do I apply that to life? That's a way mm. more potent invocation of the scientific method. And, um, so, but I, I'll still answer your question. So the scientific method I've summarized, and I'm happy to repeat that summary for you into one sentence. Scientific method is do whatever it takes so that you are not fooled into thinking something is true that is not, or that something is not true that is. That's the scientific method in a nutshell. Powerful. And anything else, any other description you've ever read is a manifestation of that credo. The credo, is that the right word? That, that, um, yeah, I think so. I get it. There's credo, there's <laughs> adage, there's rubric, whatever. Just that saying, all right? So, so they say, well, you need to have a control sample and you need to perform the experiment multiple times. These are all so that you're not fooled into thinking something is true that is not. Whatever steps you can take to minimize the chances of you being led astray are legitimate scientific method. So in life, when you want to make a decision, so <laughs> here's something that you, you don't expect this answer because the, the people who are the great writers are people who, who feel, right? And they communicate these feelings and we all as humans embrace this. But if I were to sort of reword it, I would say, when there's a conflict between your mind and your heart, go with your mind. <laughs> mm, yep. Okay. Let go with your mind. And I'm because your mind has the capacity to evaluate what is or is not true, even in the face of what you want to be true or not true. And the urge to want things to be true or not true can completely blind you, especially in a relationship or in, you know, or important decisions, life decisions that you have to make. And so take advantage of the fact that you have a brain. I mean, since when is the brain a problem for you, right? Relative to emotions that are so susceptible to desires. So... Yeah, I think the scientific method can be hugely influential to you and useful in making important life decisions. And Neil, what about uh, with all the misinformation? Wait, wait, did I answer? I know I, I readjusted your question, but did I, did <laughs> I do justice to it? You definitely did. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's a powerful point. Everyone needs to think about. I wanted to just double click on this point um, because 
uh, as it applies to what's happening right now in culture, it feels like there's so much misinformation. There's a lack of like, you know, reality versus lies. And, and so how do you apply that, like the investigation of truth, um, you know, when it comes to things that you can't physically, you know, contact, like how do you, what's your approach with all this misinformation now? Yeah. So it's a great question and there's a lot in it. So let me just pick pieces out of it that I feel comfortable um, giving good answers to. And then I'll take other pieces where I'll give crappy answers to it. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll give the good answers first. <laughs> so one of them is you can ask, well, why do we have a resurgence or a surgence of people who think the world is flat? That's kind of weird, right? Yeah. I mean, we've been to the moon for goodness sake and the people who think earth is flat. So I think to myself, the, that we coexist in this world with, quote, flat earthers is evidence of two things. That here in the United States, we live in a country that protects free speech. <laughs> and the second point, it's evidence of a failed educational system. Because if you go around thinking that way, it's because you don't know how to evaluate evidence. And in most science classes that are taught, they don't teach how to evaluate evidence. They say, here's what the DNA molecule is, and here's what the combustion engine is, and here's, you know, and then, and here's what a molecule is. And so you have these facts that can be uh, tested with multiple choice questions. And at no time do you see, think, or feel that science is an enterprise. Science is a way of querying nature above all else. And the rest just flows out of that. To think of science as a satchel of facts and then move on mm. is to not fully understand how science works and why. So, uh, so that's with regard to flat earthers. There are others. Uh, by the way, I don't mind if you want to be a flat earther. Just I want to make sure you don't ever become the head of NASA, right? <laughs> Plenty of jobs for you <laughs> if you want to think Earth is flat. Um, there was a basketball player, Kyrie Irving, played for the Boston Celtics. I think he got traded may maybe recently, but I think he's an active player. And he got all up on Twitter saying he thinks Earth is flat. And then people started asking me to react to him. And I said, he plays basketball. I don't care what he thinks about the shape of the earth. This, I, I really, I'm, I'm cool with this, all right? Uh, he would later confess, is that the right word, confess? He would later reveal that he looked at one YouTube video on Flat Earth, and then YouTube kept pounding him. Wow. It went straight to another video on the same, and another, and another, and another, and he fell really deep down the flat earth rabbit hole. And at no time was any video sent his way rebutting any of the arguments that had been given. And so there he is thinking he's getting to the bottom of a real thing that's a cover-up from NASA. And he would later confess that he then spent time looking at scientific accounts of the shape of the earth and then he apologized, basically apologized, saying he uh, he was duped by the forces of the internet that feed what you want to be true. Wow. So yeah, we are in a in, in quite the gallery of influence, and this has been talked about. There have been documentaries on 
the business model of Facebook and Twitter and, and all of these, uh, Instagram, all of these, where they're feeding you things and you don't even know you're sinking into a silo yeah. where you don't even know other silos exist. Initially, you say, oh, I'm just in one silo and there's 10 others, and you get deep enough in it, you think that's the whole world. And anybody that does not align with what you just learned, they are the clueless ones. And you are the enlightened one, the anointed one. And you have access to the truth that no one else has. That is dangerous for an informed democracy. Yeah, wow. That we have that susceptibility. So this is where the methods and tools of science come in handy. If somebody makes a claim, you test it. You explore that claim. You don't just buy into it and then dub, double down upon it. Wow. And I think also the algorithm piece is really important right now. There's a podcast called The Rabbit Hole, which talks about how people are becoming more and more polarized based on the algorithms. Of course, The Social Network came out and a couple other documentaries. So, so yeah, I think that's really important. I think that we have to be really careful about what we pay attention to and also to like clear our browsers maybe so that we don't get... <laughs> I don't have a problem connecting people with other people who have similar interests. You know, if you, if you like to bake, you, there's a baking group, right? If you like to, skateboarding, right. right? These are hobbies and these are interests, but when they become sort of politically charged then you can be fed on such a level where you are certain everyone who does not share your views is wrong or that there'll be the end of civilization. And that was never, uh, that was never sort of checked at the door when these algorithms started pairing people with other like-minded uh, compatriots. Right. Right. Uh, Neil, Quick question before we move on to uh, the last few questions as we're winding down. This has been so fascinating. I have like a hundred more questions to ask you, but I can answer I them faster if you prefer. <laughs> like fire fi round. Bite, I'm very sound by train for the <laughs> evening news. So if I, just 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 let me know and we can do it. Oh, oh well. So I wanted to talk about astrophysics for people in a hurry um, and cosmic queries. Why did you write those books and why the title astrophysics for people in a hurry? You know what was the the reasoning behind behind this book yeah that came out in 2017 and then it like went to like number one <laughs> like of all books and that was like really creepy because i, I wanted to remind people you realize this is about astrophysics <laughs> I to, I, do people need a reality check that they just bought a book on astrophysics uh and and just to be clear it's it's not astrophysics for dummies right? Holding mm -hmm. aside that that title was already taken, it's actually real astrophysics. If you read astrophysics for people in a hurry, the in a hurry part is that it's a small, short book. But I handpicked like the most mind-blowing things about the universe to put in that book and the most thought-provoking things. And so that anyone would feel like they could access what might be highly, otherwise highly complex concepts. And let me tell you the level at which I did this. By the way, I hate uh, introductions and prefaces to books, you know, especially those that go on for pages and pages. It's like, if it's that important, put it in the damn book. All right? <laughs> I don't want to read all this and then begin your book. Put it in the book. All right. So there I am writing a preface. And I said, but I hate prefaces. So what I did was I make sure that, and I forgot in that book how long, if, if it didn't fit on one page, then it's like a page and a half. 
right? So you turn the page and say, oh, it ends right there. I can get through this premise. (laughs) So so there's a lot of sort of psychology of how I wrote that book Mm. to keep people engaged because they're reading astrophysics. And it turned out it was very popular. And there's even a, a young reader's version of it called astrophysics for young people in a hurry. And I think <laughs> young people should never really be in a hurry, but there it is. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so, so, so that's what motivated me. And mm-hmm. it's got some of my most sort of pedagogically um, invested ways of communicating. So, uh, so I was delighted that it did so well, delighted and surprised. Um, in the second book you mentioned, Cosmic Courage, that just came out like a month ago. That's a fatter book, but I think it's just as fun to read. It's produced by National Geographic Books. Mm-hmm. So it's got like cool pictures in it. And and we took it up a notch and it wasn't just pictures of the universe because there's a hundred books with pictures of the universe in them. You don't need this for that. Uh, it also has like artwork that evokes the concept of what was being described in the text. Mm-hmm. So just to show you that, uh, you know, art and science, there are two ways we we try to make sense of the world around us. And then uh, we have different methods and tools, but in the end, they both land within the consumer of that concept. And so in, in Cosmic Queries, you know, there are questions that have been asked throughout the history of civilization that, and collected in this book, that are the deepest things we have ever asked. All right, so in this book, it's not, oh, how hot is the sun? You, you know, Google that. In this is what, you know, how did it all begin? What's it all made of? Are we alone in the universe? How will it all end? Uh, and and some questions have, have good answers. We got them. Others have answers we're not sure of. We, we got top people still investigating them. And other questions we don't even know if it's the right question to ask. That's the bleeding edge. And this takes you there because this is, based on questions we've asked, not on whether or not we actually have answers to them yet. Wow. So it's a little more ambitious in terms of your curiosity. And if you've been curious about the universe, it goes there. It totally takes you all places and connects you to the cosmos like nothing else I've ever written. And it's uh, available on Amazon, correct? Cosmic Queries. Yes, it is. And um, uh, duty-bound to say also on uh, indie books, uh, only because Amazon is squeezing independent booksellers. So I try to make sure you, you you know about all the ways you can acquire the book. Amazon typically does very well in price. Um, and it's also an audio book, too. Oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah, so I'm delighted that uh, there's been that interest in it just over this past five weeks. Wonderful. Are you the narrator? So so <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't narrate as much as I could. Mm-hmm. primarily because they're people where like they're paying their rent on their narrations. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so I wrote the book and so that should be enough for me Yeah. and let someone else have a payday by narrating the book. And so, so I found someone who I used in another context to do most of the book. Her name is Lauren Forstag and for the forcing I left, I think I left out a syllable there. Uh, she has a crystal clear voice. Oh, it's it's beautifully clear and crisp and 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 she's got much better diction than I have. Um, but what we did was in this book, there are also these insert boxes and 
an assortment of several dozen of my tweets. So everyone listening to her, but then I, my voice comes in um, and I read my tweets and I read some of these content boxes. So that helps to break. If you feel that the science was getting a little, you know, a little heavy, this breaks that for you. And so Mm -hmm. I think it was a fun collaboration to do it that way. And I enjoyed it. Very cool. Yeah. Well, definitely check it out. I love audiobooks. Mm -hmm. And Neil, you also started Star Talk, which is a really fascinating uh, podcast. And I feel like you cover so many different types of uh, topics. Why did you start uh, Star Talk? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. Uh, Star Talk has been around for like 13 years. And that's like a billion years ago in <laughs> podcast time. <laughs> you know, I think there were like four podcasts when we first posted. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure there were four. And so, um, no, but we, we actually have a tenure on tenure. That's the wrong word. We have, um, time we had spent on, uh, broad, what do you call it? Terrestrial radio, as well as, um, satellite radio. And we had, uh, we were on TV for a couple of years. So, uh, Star Talk has been this living entity over all this time. And it was my attempt to bring science to people who didn't know in advance whether or not they liked science. I mean, there's great science programming out there. There's, um, you know, Science Friday on NPR, you know, and, and, and that's a journalist in weekly interviewing a scientist. But if you tune into that, it's because you know in advance you like science. And you probably don't even care who the scientist is. You know it's going to be some fun and interesting science. I, I get that. But there are more people who are not that than who are that. And how about the people who were once curious in their youth and their curiosity flame has dimmed to an ember, right? I want to refan those coals and have it reignite. Uh, And so we figured the way to do this was we invert the model so that the host is a scientist instead of a journalist. And my guests by and large, maybe maybe a third, a fourth to a third of the time they're scientists. Most of the time they're not. They're people hewn from pop culture, actors, comedians, politicians, um, entertainers of one stripe or another. And the conversation, we talk about ways that science has touched their lives. And so that you, you might be a fan of that person, okay? I, I, I've interviewed... Um, some pop stars that are, you know, they define the, 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 the universe of pop culture. Katy Perry was at one point, one of my, uh, uh, guests. And we talked about a song she wrote about where she fell in love with an alien. And I just had to get to the bottom of that. I just had to find <laughs> out, okay, what was going on when you wrote this song? What's the, and I think she, I forgot the details of that. Was she attracted to the alien outfit, the costume? Uh, but there was a, but anyhow, you get into, uh, and you, you learn people, some, many of these people have geek underbellies. Okay. I, do you know, do you know who Josh Groban is? I do not. Okay. Uh, he's a crooner, a singer. Okay. Okay. 99% of his audience is female. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where you were when that, when the call came out (laughs) to to show up at his concerts. Okay. (laughs) So, so anyhow, so 
all right. So he has a very devoted following. Uh, okay. But so I'm asked, what, we're talking about all kinds of random things. And I said, do you ever into science at all? He said, well, when he was in high school, he had a science fair project where he took a speaker cone, one of the big kinds, the woofers, and he glued mirrors to the speaker cone, aimed a laser at the mirrors to reflect the laser on the ceiling. And then he played music through that speaker cone. And as it wow. vibrated, you'd see the laser dot dancing on the ceiling. And that was a science fair project. And I said, brilliant. Wow. <laughs> I said, combine music and vibrations and lasers <laughs> and reflections. And so th the point is what Star Talk, the goal is to bring science into places that previously it was uninvited. Mm. Or, or not specifically uninvited, but was never thought to have been invited in the first place. And as a result, we've been successful entering the commercial marketplace. NPR Science Friday still begs you for money every quarter, right? As is the way NPR functions, and and that's their business model. Uh, Star Talk has enough pop culture following that we have actual authentic advertisers who are supporting the science that we are bringing to the public. So uh, we're very proud of it, and we're going to like our 13th season now, yeah. and we're spreading out. We want to do a, uh, we have a, a Star Talk um, sports edition, oh, right? Wow. <laughs> There's no end of physics in sports, right? There's everything, motion, energy, that's all physics. So we're trying to bring science to places where, like I said, previously it was uninvited. I love that. Amazing. So I'll include that in the show notes as well. Mm -hmm. And Neil, I wanted to ask what matters most to you, knowing everything that you know, um, what do you, how do you prioritize your life? Like what is important to you these days? Yeah, that's a, Thank you for that question. Um, my family is important. All right. I have two kids, one 20 and 24 now, I guess they're not kids. Of course, I think of them that way, but they're not kids. <laughs> you know, my daughter calls me, you know, on my iPhone and her picture comes up. It's a picture of when she was like eight. <laughs> I think that she updated. <laughs> I just haven't gotten around to it, you know, she's still. Um, <laughs> uh, it reminds me, there's a scene in the movie Father of the Bride with Steve Martin, and he's at a dinner table and you don't see who the guests are, but it's clearly a holiday dinner. And he's sort of drifting, you know, <laughs> it looks off in the distance. And there's the, there's this din of the, of the dinner conversation going on in the background. It's uh, unintelligible, but, and you're just wondering, what's he thinking about? And then he hears, daddy, I decided I'm going to marry. <laughs> and, and he looks and there's his like eight year old daughter saying she wants to marry. And then he like blinks and no, she's 23. Okay. <laughs> oh, so uh, no, th that matters. So I'd like spending quality time with family. Mm -hmm. And of course they're, they've got their own agendas and they, you know, they're they're But holidays, we, you know, we, we gather and anytime we're together, we have family meals. So I value that greatly. Um, and then, um, beyond that, nothing is in balance. People say, how do you balance, you know, your public work with the mm -hmm. science and the research? No, there's, it's never in balance. That's a, a, I don't want to call it a fiction. Let me call it a, a, I think it's an overrated goal mm -hmm. 
that you want your life to be balanced. Because it is the very fact that it's thrown out of balance, because some things at any one moment weigh more than other things or have higher urgency and that need resolution, the fact that it's in balance, I think, fosters innovation in your ability to solve problems, to figure things out. Your efficiencies get improved and enhanced. And so... Um, so every day I want to make sure I learn something new that I didn't know the day before. And I want to accrue that to whatever wisdom I can declare that I have, however delusionally for getting older. All right. People say, well, I wish I was younger again. No, I don't wish I was younger because I was an idiot when I was younger. <laughs> I like what I've learned. All right. And I value what I've learned and that comes with age. But if you stop learning, then you ossify at some age point. And then all your time in life that follows it is just getting ready to die, as far as I can tell. Mm. Whereas if you remain a lifelong learner, curious about the unknown, then provided you have healthy mind, which can't be said in all cases, unfortunately, because of dementia and other um, afflictions of the brain. But if you can, you can carry that all the way to the rest of your life. And then when people come to you, you'll be wiser and wiser for every day that has gone by and contribute to the world. Because at the end, you want the, uh, not to speak for other people, but I don't think this is a stretch to say, I think you want the world to be a better place for you having lived in it. Mm, yeah. Powerful. Thank you, Neil. And as a science creator with great reach, what kind of actionable social causes do you think we should be paying attention to now and why? I mean, what which social causes are you paying attention to right now? Yeah, I, I have a very, I don't want to call it a strict philosophy. I have a practical <laughs> philosophy of my public engagement, which is I will never tell you what to do. <laughs> all right. Mm. I'm not going to tell you what cause to vote. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to tell you where to give money. Mm. I'm not going to. And this was, it was a little bit embarrassing because Stephen Colbert did the ice bucket challenge with me. Okay. <laughs> right. And this is for a really good cause, right? It's ALS, right? So he, he gets dunked in a bucket of ice and said, I challenge Neil deGrasse Tyson. And then I didn't because I'm not going to tell you to give money to any one cause or another. I'm just not going to do that. What I will do at all turns that I can is enlighten you as much as I possibly can so that when you do decide if you have money that you can give or time to give to a cause that you've, you've thought it through and realize, you know, that cause is for a greater good and that that's a good and but you would have come up with this on your own. You're not going to say I'm going to do this because Tyson said so because Tyson values it. No, uh, if 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 you do it only because I did it, then you didn't think it through yourself. And what kind of an educator would I be if you did things only because I did it? Yeah. If I'm an educator, you do things because you you thought I taught you how to think, and now you go think it through all by yourself and you come up with a decision and I am nowhere to be found in those thoughts. That's my goal. My goal is we have an enlightened world by all the educators and you don't even remember who enlightened you because it's not about the person. The moment it becomes about the person that's like cult building, that's what all cults have in, in common. There's a picture of the cult leader on the wall 
All right. And yes, the cult leader has sometimes deep thoughts and interesting um, perspectives. Well, then why don't you have those deep thoughts on the wall? No, you have the picture of the person on the wall, typically. So I don't ever want that to happen. Let, let this be just a spread of thoughts and wisdom and, and you take ownership of your own decisions in life. So yeah, I worry about climate change because that contains the seeds of the unraveling of civilization. I worry about misinformation. I worry about that, but so should everybody. That's not just me. That's like, don't you care about tomorrow? (laughs) Right? If you don't care about tomorrow, at least know the consequences of you not caring about tomorrow. And I think most people who don't care about tomorrow have not been duly instructed on the causes and effects of not caring. And so I'm not going to tell you what to care about, but I'll tell you the consequences of you not caring. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) I think think that's great. Yeah. I mean, empowering people to become more enlightened, to make stronger, make stronger choices and, and stronger decisions really. Yes. And have informed opinions, right? right? People say, what's your opinion? I don't have an opinion for you. I have opinions, but I'm not, (laughs) why do you want to know my opinion? Why do you care? All right. And so, no, I don't offer opinion. So much people think that pundits should have opinions that I will post something on the internet and people will think I'm expressing an opinion when I'm just offering information. I, I find that fascinating. Fast is one of the most fascinating social cultural observations I have made in the last decade, <laughs> basically, but mostly in the last several years. A An opinion neutral tweet becomes an assumption that it contains opinions and then people start fighting over what they think it means. Rather than just say, oh, I never knew that. That's interesting. And then moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like to always say my observation. So that way it kind of gets me away from this is, you know, just my observation is. Um, yeah, but I would say it's not even an observation. It just is. Yeah. <laughs> it just is. Neil, what do you want to tell our listeners about your main takeaway? Like last few comments that you could tell our audience. Yeah, takeaways that implies everything can just be encapsulated into one, one sort of saying or epithet. And sometimes that's true, but maybe real insight comes from having deeper thoughts than just simply a takeaway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like people running for office. Well, I got to have a slogan. Otherwise people <laughs> won't remember the longer sentence that, <laughs> that is more instructive of my policies. Right. Maybe it's more like a call to action. How about that? Like what's... what's yeah, no, the... like I said, I'm not here to call people to action. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, um, here's what it would be. I would say, I think society can benefit if people remained curious about the world and became lifelong learners. And here's what happens. It happens more with adults than with if you're younger and you're in school. You latch on to something that you think is true or that you want to be true. And then you, you bend over backwards, editing conflicting information, saving information that possibly aligns with it so that you can continue to embrace what you think or want to be true in this world. That is not the posture of an enlightened society. So a school system, I think, needs to change in such a way that you are not glad 
when the school day ends or when spring break begins or when the summer break starts. No, you are sad. Mm. You are sad because now you're no longer in school where, where you were enlightened by the day. And uh, each day there was some interesting thing you learned. You couldn't wait to return the next day. And within that, train you to become a lifelong learner because you'll spend many more years not in school than you ever did in school. Getting out of school should not be the end. And to overstate a tired commencement comment, that a commencement, that word means the beginning. It doesn't mean the ending. Whereas everyone at a commencement is thinking, I just ended school, isn't it great? So if everyone is a lifelong learner, then I think there's less of a chance you'll become ossified into something that you need to be true or want to be true, and then have a fight or argument with someone else about it. You'll say, oh, that's interesting, let me explore that. And then everybody climbs and ascends this ladder of knowledge, always becoming greater and deeper. And so if I were to impart some kind of sense of the world on people, it would be stay curious. I be as curious it. as an adult as we all were as children. I love that, Neil. Thank you so much for your time. Um, so for everyone, stay curious. But of course, we've had this incredible conversation with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And Neil, are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you? We'll include the uh, Amazon links in the show notes. But is there a kind of a main landing page for folks to uh, connect with you? Well, just my, my website is part of the American Museum of Natural History. So, so the, by the way, the wiki page, I don't know who writes these wiki pages, but <laughs> it contains sufficient <laughs> frequency of incorrect information that um, my website has my CV. It has links to all my books. It's, it's a highly um, enriched space for things that I have created. And so it's uh, uh, haydenplanetarium.org uh, slash Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh. But you just 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 Google my name, bypass the wiki page, and go straight to the HaydenPlanetarium.org site, and it's all there. Amazing. So thanks for that. Mm -hmm. Okay, amazing, Neil. Thank you so much for your time. Um, just so grateful that we had this conversation, and I feel very inspired, and I want to learn so much more. So thank you again. Excellent, and... excellent. That's <laughs> what an educator wants to hear. I've learned so much more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Take all right, care. Neil. Take care. For our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about the cosmos and investigating our place in the universe with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one -on -one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, spirituality. Thanks again.